Listener Production. Want to learn how to feel good whilst attracting what you want into your life? I have designed a course for you using the manifesting methods I use daily. This is an audio course, so it can be easily listened to in the car, going for a walk or on your daily commute. And I've designed printable worksheets with exercises to help you practice what you're learning. All the info on the course is in this episode show notes, or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics and a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne. He's also known as the world's most influential living philosopher. He is credited with starting the modern animal rights movement and he has had a big influence on the development of effective altruism. He is extremely wise, at times controversial, but most importantly passionate about making a difference in this world. In this robust conversation, we discuss reducing the suffering of animals in factory farms, euthanasia and having the right to die in your own terms, and what is actually required to change the world for good. As a philosopher, I can focus on what is the best answer, what is the the truth of the matter, what are the most justifiable ways of living, what are things we ought to do and things we ought not to do. I think my career has shown that it isn't just interesting and entertaining for itself, but that it does matter to how we live and that I've tried to influence people to live in better ways that cause less harm to others. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Peter Singer is the author of many very well-known books, including The Life You Can Save and his newest book, Animal Liberation Now. In its essence, this conversation is about eliminating the cruelty we inflict on animals and how when we do good, it can bring a lot of fulfilment into our lives. My hope is that this conversation equips you with knowledge that empowers you to create a positive impact, not only for yourself, but for the betterment of everyone around you. Peter Singer, thank you for joining me today. You are one of the greatest philosophers of our time. And I wanted to start at the beginning. You grew up where we are now, which is Melbourne, Australia. And I wanted you to take us through the younger years, your parents' immigrated to Australia from Vienna, so did mine, to escape Nazi persecution. Can you talk to us a bit about that and your upbringing? Yes, sure. Um, Yeah, they came here in 1938. They left Vienna as soon as they could get uh, a visa to go somewhere else. And I was born in 1946. So they'd been here eight years. Um, They were clearly still foreigners. I mean, they had foreign accents. But they had worked hard. My father um, had started a small business and my mother, who had graduated from in medicine at the University of Vienna, had sat exams here in Melbourne because they didn't at that time automatically recognise a University of Vienna medical degree, although it's quite a famous medical school. So she had to sit exams in English, um, but she had then qualified as a medical practitioner 
So we were reasonably comfortably off at that stage. And my parents, I think, were keen to assimilate. They were keen to be proper Australians. And one aspect of that is that they did not speak German to me. They spoke English to me. And I kind of regret that I learned German later, but I obviously make mistakes in it that I wouldn't if they'd spoken German <laughs> to me. But they were worried that if they did, I would grow up with a German accent yes. and they didn't want that. Um, and, you know, they made sure that I got a good education. Uh, that was obviously important to them. Uh, and um, my father, I think, might have liked me to go into the business in, in some ways, but, you know, he didn't really push me hard because he also was aware that small business was a kind of risky thing that the big, bigger boys would push you at. Um, so he was reasonably happy when I went to university because originally I was going to study law when I went up to the University of Melbourne. Um, but there was an advisor I spoke to who saw that I'd done well in other subjects uh, in my final year at school and said, why don't you combine an arts and a law course? You'll find it more interesting than a straight law course. So that's what I did and I got interested in philosophy and there was a point at which um, I could go on with the philosophy. I was offered a scholarship to do a master's degree or I could continue the law degree, which I hadn't finished. And I said to my father, to my parents, that I, I was wanted to try philosophy and see how it went. And my father said, "But you can't make a living doing philosophy. You know, you need to get the law degree." Well, I suppose I proved him wrong <laughs> about that, and he still lived to see that I could make a living in, in philosophy. Oh, that's nice. It's interesting because your parents are Jewish, and I read that at thirteen you declined having a bar mitzvah you ended up becoming atheist. Not many 13-year-olds declined having a bar mitzvah. So I'd love to know why that was. It's true that not many of those I knew. My cousin, for example, who was of similar age, uh, did have a bar mitzvah and people I knew said, you get lots of money as presents yes. and things. But um, I didn't really want to spend all that time um, in Sunday school uh, learning to pronounce the Torah in, in Hebrew um, and, and also, I was already uh, not religious and my parents were not religious. Um, so, you know, it was a bit foreign to me, this idea of going through this ritual, uh, going to synagogue, reading from the Torah, because um, my mother never went to synagogue. My father maybe went on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and that was it. Mm. Um, and so, it didn't really feel like part of who I was um, by the time I was 13. Obviously, your parents being Jewish, I wonder if having that Jewish heritage had any influence over your thinking, even in a subtle or indirect manner. Yeah, it's a good question, and I suppose it must have. You know, one thing that I did take, of course, was the fact that my parents had fled the Holocaust, but their parents on both sides had not. Mm. Um, and that was fairly common. I'm not sure what the situation was with your parents, but it was fairly common that the older generation, people in their 60s, thought they didn't have much to lose. It would be hard to learn the new language and establish any kind of career. And, you know, what was going to happen to them? They would be pushed into retirement. So my mother's father, for example, was a high school teacher um, and he, you know, immediately had to stop teaching because he was not an Aryan. Uh, so, but, you know, they, 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 procrastinated, I guess you could say. They weren't keen to leave and when they did decide they would like to come, um, things went wrong and uh, they didn't get out. And um, the only one of my four grandparents that survived was my grandmother who was in Theresienstadt um, and fortunately not sent on to Auschwitz like many people from Theresienstadt were. Um, so she did survive and, 
eventually joined us in Australia. Uh, but, but that was very much part of my background. And my father, for example, had photos of his family and his relatives, not just his parents, but his uncles and aunts and, and you know, so many of them had died. And uh, he would take out the photos and he would cry over them. Um, so obviously that affected me as well um, and made me, I think, you know, made me very concerned about regimes that used force, that used violence, um, that were not democratic, that suppressed free speech. I think um, a lot of those attitudes uh, I got from that Holocaust background that my family had. Mm. Yeah, it is a, such an interesting one. My grandmother came from Austria. Her whole family came out, so they came just before the war. But my grandpa fled and his whole family from Poland. They were all persecuted. And it's an interesting thing when you think about the understanding of trauma and epigenetics and all that kind of information that's coming out now and how that's passed through from generation to generation. So even if it doesn't touch you directly, I mean, you have been touched more directly than I have been because I'm a generation or two after, you still can't help for it to affect you. Yeah, it affects you, but um, it doesn't affect me in the sense of having traumatised me. Yes, I, yes. And, and I, you know, maybe this makes me a little less tolerant than, than I ought to be about people who have been subject to racism in various ways, you know, let's say in Australia today or in the United States, where obviously they're not being sent to camps and, and murdered. Um uh, or even close to that, because I, I feel that my parents, you know, remain positive. Mm. You know, yes, they'd lost a lot, um, but they were positive about coming to Australia. Uh, they both had careers. Um, as I said, my, my father in particular, but also my mother, I'm sure, were very sad about the losses that they had. But they were pretty determined to say, we're here in Australia. You know, this is a, uh, a decent country. We can live here. We can make friends here. Um, and we're going to make the best of where we are. Obviously, a lot of your work, you're a utilitarian. And with everything going on at the moment between Israel and its neighbouring states, I'd love to get your views on what you think about that. In a way, just as I, when I was brought up, I was not brought up to be uh, religiously Jewish. Yeah. I was also not brought up to be a Zionist. Um, and in fact, you know, subsequently I... I uh, read a lot of materials that my grandparents, uh, particularly my mother's uh, father, um, had left, and uh, he was not a Zionist either, actually. There's letters that he wrote to his nephew who had gone to Israel and uh, had actually become religious, and, you know, my grandfather was obviously somewhat bewildered by this. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, you know, clearly I... I, I want there to be peace everywhere in the world. Um, I'd like people to find reasonable solutions to conflicts. Um, but, uh, and I have been to Israel a couple of times. There were some relatives of ours I said, who went to Israel and I visited them, but quite a long time ago. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm very disturbed by what's going on in Israel now. Um, I think that's a, a terrible situation. Um, and, you know, on both sides, there are people who are intransigent and who get more and more hardline and it makes it really very, very difficult to see a, a peaceful resolution to this conflict. What do you think would be an outcome that would be one that would benefit majority of people that lived in, in those areas? I think people would, would have to agree that they can get on better and get, their, their lives will be better. 
if they can cooperate, if they can, uh, people whether whether Jewish or Palestinian uh, background uh, can be equal citizens of uh, of the state. Uh, I think those are the compromises that would need to be made. So I want to start talking about your new book. You have Animal Liberation Now, which has just been published, which is a wonderful book. And many years ago, you published the very world-famous book, Animal Liberation. This is, in a sense, a new book, right? Yes. The previous book was called Animal Liberation. This book is called Animal Liberation Now. There is certainly um, some material from the earlier book in it, but uh, the original was published in 1975. I updated it in 1990 for a second edition, but uh, it hasn't been revised since then. So, you know, it's more than more than 30 years ago. Things have changed a lot because mm. the book isn't just philosophy. It isn't just laying out arguments about how we ought to treat animals. It's describing in detail. In fact, the two longest chapters, one describes uh, what we do to animals in, in laboratories and in, in research, and the other describes uh, factory farming and what we do to them there. And both of those areas have changed significantly. So... Um, those, those chapters are fully updated. Uh, and then there's another chapter which uh, was about what we ought to eat, about I was arguing for being a vegetarian. Um, and that's changed too because there are other things that have come in, like I didn't discuss climate change in the previous mm. book. That's obviously a major reason for being vegetarian or even being vegan because dairy is another, uh, mm. the dairy industry contributes to climate change. So um, there's a lot of new material and I, I wanted to do this because I didn't want the book just to become a kind of historical relic you know, for people to say, oh, well, this book was published in the 1970s. It had an influence in triggering the modern animal movement, but it's not relevant today. You know, I, I, I didn't, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. I know no doubt <laughs> that will eventually happen, but I wanted it to be still relevant for the 21st century. And I believe this animal liberation now is right up to date and relevant for today. There's a line that you say in the book that really stuck out. Unfortunately, humans can cause tremendous suffering to farm animals without endangering their survival and reproduction. And I wanted to talk about the notion of suffering because I find that to be really interesting, how you define suffering for both man and animal. If we look at the Buddhist theory that they talk about craving and attachment as a form of human suffering... But I'd love to know your definition for both animal and human. Yeah, so I think the definition is is the same. I think, um, if you like, you can we can start with pain, which is perhaps simpler because we yeah. have a physical understanding of pain, the nervous system uh, triggering things in the brain. At least, at least, certainly for vertebrates, but um, more complicated for some invertebrate animals. Uh, but uh, we're familiar with that. Um, Suffering is a broader concept because it doesn't just refer to physical pain, but, for example, uh, to be bored or frustrated or anxious or frightened, um, uncomfortable, those are all forms of suffering. And those are all things that we inflict on animals, including the farmed animals uh, who most people eat. So um, I think we're, you know, we're familiar with that idea of a, a, a mental state that is negative that you would rather be out of if you possibly could be. You talk a bit about cognitive abilities in animals compared to humans, and I, I really want to touch on this because I don't think a lot of people realise they kind of think an animal's an animal and, it, you know, 
doesn't think in the same way that we do. And in some senses, that is true. But in other senses, their emotional ability, they are pretty onto it. And I'd like you to take us through some of the animals that do have a higher cognitive ability and the reasons why when we are actually killing these animals, they're suffering in a lot of pain and they do know what's happening. Yes, well, that's certainly true of many of the animals uh, that we use in various ways. Um, I suppose, you know, if you wanted to start at the top, you would look at Jane Goodall's work about Mm. chimpanzees and a lot of other things that have been shown that chimpanzees can learn uh, a human sign language. They also clearly, you know, think about the future and do plans for the future. And I think a lot of people know that, but they don't realise that other animals also have significant cognitive abilities um, and that they they want to do things and that they are aware that they are not in a comfortable situation. So um, one study, for example, took uh, hens, the kind of commercial hens that, that lay eggs, that are standardly kept in, in wire cages and still commonly kept that way in Australia and the United States and um, many other countries, although the European Union has, has different laws on that. But um, took those hens and familiarised them both with cages and with uh, an outside grass run and um, then uh, essentially taught them to be able to open a gate that would get them out of the cage and to the grass run. Um, and, and the experiment was to see, firstly, you know, whether that's what they wanted to do, um, and it turned out that is what they wanted to do, and they, they never wanted to do the opposite, to leave the grass run. And secondly, um, how hard would they try to get to that grass run? And you can do that by meaning that they have to peck, the, peck a button repeatedly many, many times to, to get the gate open. And they would still do it. They would work almost as hard to get out in the grass run as they would work to get food if they hadn't been fed for long enough to make them hungry. So um, even even chickens, which we tend to think of as lower in some way, not so smart, um, not on the same level as cows or pigs, for instance, um, do have those capacities to to make choices and to prefer certain situations. Um, And when you get to to pigs, um, they have really complex behaviour which in a factory farm they're completely unable to, to do. For example, when a sow is ready to give birth, if she's in her natural environment, pigs are naturally sort of forest animals, um, she will try and, and make herself a kind of a nest. She'll assemble leaves and twigs and things into a comfortable area where she can lie down and give birth and where the piglets will be around her. But if she's in a, a building which has either concrete floors or metal slats, she can't do that. And... Um, some some units might provide straw, but most of them don't because that's an added expense and then you have to clean the straw when it gets fouled with the manure. That takes more labour. Uh, whereas if you just have a concrete floor or metal slats, you just hose it all down and it's gone. Um, so it's cheaper, but it's not what the pig wants, not what the, the, the mother pig wants when she's giving birth um, or at any other time, really. you know, It's, it's not a comfortable situation for them. Um, and they're totally bored in, indoors because a, a pig's day normally in the forest would be spent rooting around, looking for food, socialising with a small group of pigs, uh, and that just can't happen in, in factory farms. There's that notion as well that we know is true that with certain animals, they know before they're going to get killed and so then the fight or flight starts building in them and all the different hormones and they're panicking and then as humans we're going on to eat this meat that 
God knows what it has in it because this poor animal has been watching its other who knows what, like friends, siblings being killed, and then it's just waiting for its turn. And it completely understands what's going on. I think it, it will if it is seeing um, others being killed. I mean, I think this this actually does depend on the design of the slaughterhouse yeah. um, and, and the handling of the pigs beforehand. The, the first stressful thing, of course, is that these pigs who have been inside a building all their lives are now taken out of that building um, and trucked off to the slaughterhouse. There's maybe some, in some countries, there may be some very large farms where, in fact, the slaughterhouse is, is built into the unit. But, but if, you know, they're packed into trucks, they're, they're terrified of that, of course. They've had no experience of that. And so they're, they're stressed even before they get to the slaughterhouse. And then if they do see other pigs slaughtered or even if they smell the blood and know that something is wrong, um, then, yes, certainly they're going to be yeah. um, very stressed by that. It was interesting. I was just in Indonesia over Christmas and one of the Indonesian guys that was working where we were staying, he had driven us somewhere and he said, oh, do you want to come? I also deal with chickens. Do you want to come and see like the, where the chickens are or something? I don't know why we said yes, but we did. Anyway, he took us to this huge barn and there were thousands upon thousands of chickens in there, right? Yeah, well, you can see that right here. You yeah. don't have to go to Indonesia. It was... It was Awful. 20,000 chickens yeah. is normal for a shed. It was probably yeah. that. Yeah. And, um, yes, they weren't in cages, but they may as well be no, in cages. because these are meat chickens, right? Yes, the, the ones in yes. cages are laying eggs. Yes, the ones they were meat seeing, chickens. Yeah, chickens being raised And then meat. I think from, I don't think they even had them in there for very long, maybe like seven or eight weeks or yeah. maybe whatever, they get yeah, shipped no. out. Yeah, up, up to six weeks because, they've again, they bred them to grow faster yes. and faster. So yeah. then there are all these chickens lying there and then we're like, are some of them kind of dead? Like, oh, my God. And But he's like, no, no, they're not dead. And he hit something and then they kind of came awake. One of the girls who, I don't know if it's a relative or something, her job, and we saw her, was to walk through there, find the dead ones, holding them up by their legs and just like fling them out. Absolutely. That is, it that, was that is completely standard. Horrendous. Yeah, that is that is standard. Um, in the, the industry... As you say, these are very young birds. They, they're sent to be killed at six to seven weeks. But the industry accepts a, a percentage mortality of about 5%. So one in 20 of those birds yeah. is going to die before they get to their sixth or seventh week. And nobody gives them any care. Nobody says, oh, this is a sick bird. Maybe we should you know, get some help for the bird. Or even maybe we should put this bird out, out of its misery. Um, they wouldn't even know there were so many in right, there. That's right, exactly. They don't know. Um, so they walk through, they pick up the corpses um, and uh, and get rid of them. And some of them, you know, one of the reasons that some of them are dying or lying on the floor is they're bred to grow so fast, mm. they put on weight so quickly that their leg bones are immature and causes them pain to support their body weight. So uh, there's a professor in England who studied this called John Webster who says that raising chickens for meat is the worst thing that we do to animals. Really? Um, because of, partly because of the enormous scale. Yeah. You know, we're talking about tens of billions worldwide, maybe 50, 60 billion. Um, in the US, it's about 9 billion a year. Um, so it's a vast scale and they're in pain for the last couple of weeks of their lives because their legs don't support their bodies. Um, you know, it's been likened to... Um, like if you're if you're working in a shop and the, and the boss says you have to stand up, you know you can't sit down all day, um, but you've got uh, arthritis or something like that, which is causing pain in your legs, but you're still 
forced to stand. And some of them will lie down, but, but that's a problem because they're droppings. You might have noticed when you went to that shed, it stank of ammonia. Um, yeah, did you notice it was, that? There yeah. Was, it, you know, I think it did. Yeah. I mean, it was so I mean, some, I've been in sheds where it actually gets in your throat and eyes and nose when you breathe. Um, and that ammonia is on the floor. They don't clean the droppings out. Um, and it forms an alkaline substance, which if they sit on it too long, can actually burn their skin in the, in the moisture, ah. you know. It, the moisture combined with the, um, with the ammonia actually is caustic. Um, so they get burns on their, on their skin and their legs. And so they can't really just spend their day lying there, except when they eat, they, they have to get up and walk around. Do you think there is any humane way to be able to eat meat at all? animal meat? Oh, in theory there is, yes. Um, and I would say there are some people who do produce meat humanely, but it's a tiny minority. Um, and there's certainly, you know, it's, as I was saying, you would need to have the animals outside and free to range. Um, we do have some egg producers who, who do that. Um, and, you know, you can see if, they, if they're labelled free range, they, they do have to have a number of hours outside each day. And the more ethical ones will put on the box how many hens mm. they have per yeah. hectare. And I would say, you know, the ones that have uh, only hundreds or maybe up to 1,500 is acceptable. When they go over that, it's getting too many and they're probably not really grass on the run much anymore because there's too many birds and they, they, they can't form social groups. But, but you can do that with eggs. Um, um, and you can do it with raising chickens for meat or raising pigs for meat. Um, if you give them good lives and plenty of space and social groupings that are natural to them. But, um, you know, it is a lot more expensive. That's why we have this factory farming. It, it pushes the, the more ethical farmers out of business or else they have to, to stay in business. They have to have an uh, educated consumer that says, yes, I'm going to pay more for these eggs or for this meat um, because... I care about how the animals lived. Um, and still, you know, there's a lot of questions you may not know. So you talked about slaughter. So how, how even if the pigs had good lives, uh, how were they slaughtered mm. or, or the cows uh, or, or the chickens, whatever it may be. So it's hard to get the information, I think, to really say I'm prepared to accept the fact that these animals were killed yes. um, because I think they had good lives and I'll sort of accept that bargain. I'll never forget, this was many years ago now, I watched this segment that, oh, well, it was a whole show, actually, that Oprah did on puppy farms. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I did not even know that existed. I think that actual show, really, it started a whole kind of movement around the world about the inhumane treatment of dogs being bred and then majority of them being sold at pet shops, which they now cannot be sold at in Australia, which is good. But that doesn't mean that these things don't exist and mm -hmm. there's a black market for it. But... The treatment of these dogs and how they were being bred was some of the worst things that I think I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, you know, a lot of people, obviously, they have dogs, so they have a real affinity towards them. And it was mothers, they put these female dogs in cages. They're there for their whole life. When they rescued some of them, they'd never walked on the grass before. So they actually did not know how to walk properly because they've been in tiny cages their whole life. They had the mothers breeding sometimes with their own children. It was so horrendous. And then they were selling these dogs onto other people. So these people were then purchasing these animals and they had absolutely no idea. How we can do that to our animals, it just throws me. I just have, you know, 
Mm. Mate, look, I agree that these uh, puppy mills are, are, are shocking places, but I am sort of troubled by the fact that people will get very concerned about that because they're dogs and, as you say, you know, that will be banned or uh, there will be things to, to stop it anyway or try very hard to stop it. And yet, you know, the same people who are saying how terrible it is to do this to dogs, you know, your description exactly applies to pig farms. Um, yeah. So the sows are in uh, often, not always, but often in small stalls that are too small even for them to turn around. They can't walk a single step. Um that's, uh, you know, when they, they only get out of that in order to be impregnated and then they go back in it as soon as they get uh, pregnant. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the piglets also, you know, they, they never go outside, they never walk on grass, they never see sunshine. Um, but, but people who get very disturbed about uh, that treatment of dogs will continue to eat pork and bacon without asking any questions about where it comes from. I totally agree with you, but, I, yeah, I think it's good to know about all of it, that people will still buy animals that they may not know have been bred at a puppy farm or something like that. So I think shedding light on all of it is very oh, important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sure, we, we should talk about all of it. I agree. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to say it's not important yeah. because they're dogs. I just want to say it's no more important than it is with pigs. Which I completely agree with you. In your book, what I noticed is that you talked a lot about China and I wanted to talk about the animal cruelty that happens in China and especially what we've seen recently with COVID, either you're of the belief that it happened in a wet farm at a Wuhan market or that it started within a scientific lab there. But I'd love to know your kind of take on that and the way that the Chinese treat their animals and also what they do a lot of the time when they're making Chinese herbs and things like that. I don't know a lot about uh, making herbs, so I won't comment on that. But, um, you know, when I first wrote Animal Liberation, it didn't really talk about China because mm. China was not a big player either in meat production or in using animals in research. But because China has become more prosperous, which obviously is, is a good thing in itself, it's good that there aren't hundreds of millions of Chinese living in extreme poverty like there were in 1975. Um, but that has increased the demand for, for meat and animal products. And uh, China has also taken a higher position in uh, research. It is more prominent in uh, global scientific research. And so it's greatly expanded the number of animals that it uses in research. And those factors combined with the fact that there aren't really national animal welfare laws in China. Um, there are some laws regulating slaughter, but for the conditions in which you can rear animals, uh, there's, there's really no national law. So China is now building enormous factory farms. Um, it's just, uh, there was an article in the New York Times a few months ago about uh, 26 stories uh, filled with pigs, basically, you know, Jeez. building with a vast number of pigs in it and they were building um, a second building to go alongside that. Uh, so uh, China's the world's biggest pig producer by a good margin and is a very large chicken producer as well. And this is all very intensively factory farmed um, and it lags behind the standards set, for example, by the European Union where they do have more enlightened laws, giving animals more space, even if they're still indoors all their lives. Um, they have to be able to walk around and uh, be in social groups often. So there's none of that in China. Uh, and when it comes to research, it's 
it's quite clear that some researchers from the United States and Europe are either moving to China or working with Chinese scientists to do things in China that they would not be able to do at home. Um, and I describe some of those experiments in animal liberation now. What are your reflections on COVID and your take on what happened with that and if it did start in the wet farm or in the lab? Look, I'm not an expert on where it started. I, I know there were these two theories. I, um, it seemed plausible to me that it did start at one of those wet markets because there are many different species of live animals mm. kept together. And at one point it was traced to bats and uh, there were bats for sale. Ch Chinese people eat bats. Um, and so it could easily have got from bats to humans and that, that way. But um, there has been a lot of discussion about the possibility that it came out of the, the lab in Wuhan and I really don't have expertise on that. But um, let me say one thing about not only COVID but other pandemics. We do know that factory farms are ideal breeding grounds mm. for new viruses. And the previous pandemic uh, before COVID was the swine flu pandemic, mm. which, you know, wasn't as, nearly as severe as COVID, but it was a significant pandemic that still killed thousands of people. And it has been traced to, to pig farms in the United States and, and Mexico. Uh, so you know, that can happen. There's um, bird flu around as well, which is being spread by uh, from chicken farms. Um, and people who are working with poultry have got bird flu. I think the first uh, human case of uh, a death from a new virus, uh, H3N8, um, was uh, was reported just a few days ago by the World Health Organization. So it's it's really another important reason for getting rid of factory farms. We don't want another pandemic. We don't want more animal bred viruses that can actually spread among humans. Uh, and uh, closing down not just wet markets but factory farms would reduce that risk. Mm. I'd love to get your take. I was reading an article recently, and it was only in 2019 where the Chinese government was still harvesting organs from prison detainees and that industry is worth a billion dollars a year. I want to know why they would still be doing something like that within the prisons. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, many years ago when I was, uh, before I went to Princeton, so more than 20 years ago, uh, that was a question that was being raised in bioethics when yeah. I was at the uh, Bioethics Centre at Monash University. Uh, and... Um, I suppose the short answer to why they were doing it was that they could make money from it. Um, uh, they, at that stage, the organs that were taken from uh, executed prisoners were being sold to Japan to Japanese. I think they were uh, they were they were coming, and there was some study that showed that there's a period when the Japanese are all on holiday and not working, and uh, more prisoners were being executed in China at that time because the Japanese who needed uh, new organs would come over and and be able to get them then. So, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, a matter of, oh, well, these people are being executed anyway, so we might as well get some benefit from their organs. Um, it was clearly having a, an effect on, on the number being executed. Uh, I'm not aware as to whether that is still happening or not. I honestly can't say because I haven't really been researching in that area in recent years. Uh, but uh, th there are... There is a shortage of kidneys for people uh, who have kidney disease and uh, people who are on the waiting list and on dialysis, uh, their condition does definitely improve significantly when they can get a donor kidney. 
So my solution to, to this problem is to uh, allow people to sell kidneys. Now, I know that's controversial, um, but you can certainly live you know, quite healthily with one kidney. Of course, it's better if people will altruistically donate a kidney, and I know some people who've actually done that, and I think that's fantastic. But I can't go around telling people to be altruistic about that because I still have two kidneys. I'm prepared to give... Uh, significant amounts of money to organizations helping people in poverty, but um, I somehow haven't come at uh, going to a hospital and getting a kidney removed. Uh, so, um, you know, but I think for, you know, I, I, I don't really see why in a free society we should prohibit people who, um, you know, under certain conditions, of course, you know, we have to make sure that they understand what's happening and that they consent fully. Um, that to them it's it's more important to get uh, a significant sum of money which might benefit them and their family for many years to come um, than it is to have two kidneys. Mm. Uh, I think we should allow people to make that decision themselves. Can you explain to people that might not know what altruism is, being a utilitarian, what the definition is? Uh, altruism essentially means um, doing things for others. I would argue that when we do things for others, we often benefit ourselves. Yes. We feel good about our, our own lives. I think there's proven research on that. There is, exactly. There is good research on that. Altruists want to make the world a better place. And uh, there's particular there's a movement that I've been involved with called effective altruism, where not only do we take this motivation of making the world a better place uh, and make that one of, one of the uh, important aims in our life, not only the only one, uh, but um, we also... Think about how to do that most effectively. So whatever resources we have, whether it's money or we have time and skills that we could volunteer to help an organization, we check out which of the organizations that will get the most good from what we can do for them. And, and we don't just sort of give impulsively because someone handed us a leaflet or because some friend said, oh, I give to this charity. We, we go online and we look at which are the most effective charities. Uh, and I founded uh, a, a, a sort of meta charity called The Life You Can Save, which makes this easier. You just go to thelifeyoucansave.org, you click on best charities, and you find a list of about 20 charities that have been independently assessed and checked so that you can be confident that your money will be benefiting the people in poverty who you want to benefit, and it will be doing that in the, with the, the greatest possible efficiency, getting the most benefit for each dollar that you can donate. We were speaking before a bit about quality of life and I know that you spoke, I think it was quite a long time ago, you spoke about a child was to be born and they were unwell and you can tell me the ins and outs of what you were talking about in the first couple of weeks of their life, is it worth living? And then the same at the end of life, if someone is completely not with it anymore and then the quality of life at the end and is it worth I suppose, us paying for them to still exist. Could you explain a bit about that to us? Yeah, let's, let's start with the easier cases, which I think are the cases of people towards the end of life. Yeah. And particularly people who've been given a diagnosis of a terminal illness. So, for example, um, they have cancer and maybe they fight it for some time, but after a while it's spread. And the doctors say, you know, we can't fight it any longer. You have months to live, not years. Uh, and, you know, they may still want to live those months at as long as they can, um, or there may come a point at which they say, my quality of life has fallen so much, I'm uncomfortable, I'm in pain, um, I can't control my bodily functions, uh, that I, I really don't want to go right to the very end. I, can, I know that it's only going to get worse. Uh, and 
if they know that and they're um, you know, clear-headed and they understand the situation and they want assistance in dying, uh, I think they should be legally entitled to have a humane death. And fortunately, in every state in Australia now, um, that is legally provided under the voluntary assisted dying legislation that exists here in Victoria, which was the first and has spread to other states. Um, and it exists in some states in the United States as well. It exists all across Canada. Mm. Um, it's just in a number of European countries, uh, initially in the Netherlands and Belgium and Luxembourg, but now also in formerly Catholic countries like, like Spain and Portugal. So um, I think that's become less controversial now. Over you know, It's been a long time that I've been arguing about that um, in bioethics, <laughs> uh, again, going back to the 1970s. Um, I've written about that. But, um, you know, fortunately, I think that issue is, for most people, not really controversial. It's only people with particular yeah. religious views who really oppose it. More difficult is the situation at the start of life when uh, a child is born with a really severe condition that um, in some cases might mean that they're very unlikely to live for more than a year or two. And in other cases might mean that they will live longer than that, but that they'll live with a, a severe disability. And, um, you know, when, when those disabilities are diagnosed during pregnancy, uh, a woman has an option to terminate the pregnancy. Uh, and, and very few people, again, except those who are against all abortions, uh, but, but if you're not against all abortions, very few people will say it's wrong for a woman to get a prenatal diagnosis and on the basis of the diagnosis that the child will have a severe disability, terminate the pregnancy. Um, so, so most people accept that. But once the baby is born, they don't accept the idea that uh, if you didn't know about the condition beforehand and now you do know about it, or maybe it even happens at birth because sometimes, say, very premature babies have major bleedings in the brain and you can then do a scan of the brain and you can see that they're never really going to recover from that bleeding in the brain. I think in those cases, parents should have the same option. So I'm saying the decision as to whether the child lives or dies should not be up to the doctors to decide whether to treat or not treat the child, but uh, the parents should be consulted as to what they think is best on the basis of the information that they're given by the doctors. And if it's a particular condition where there are organisations of people or parents with that condition in our society, I think they should consult with them too so that they get a, a different perspective from the medical perspective of what life is like with that condition, both for the, the child and, and future adult, if the child will live to be an adult, and for the parents. And then they can make an informed decision as to whether they think it's better for the child and for the whole family. Maybe they have existing children and it will be possible but very difficult and time-consuming to care for the disabled child. I think they should be entitled to make that decision as to whether they want the child to live or not. And if they decide that the child, it's better the child not live, um, you know, sometimes that can be done by simply withdrawing life support and doctors will generally go along with that. That's less controversial. But if uh, the child isn't on life support, I think they should still be able to end the child's life in a humane way, just as we might end our own life in a humane way at the other end of life. What are your thoughts about people on death row? Uh, I don't support capital punishment, um, I, I might support it if there was clear evidence that it was a uniquely effective deterrent, that let's say, you know, for every murderer you executed, uh, there would be five fewer murders committed. 
um, you know, then as a utilitarian, I would say weigh up the cost and benefits and say that's worth doing. But there's no evidence that it is um, a uniquely effective deterrent. And um, we do make mistakes. Uh, you know, mistakes have come to light where people have been convicted of murder and um, uh, the evidence was false and later they've been pardoned and if, if they're alive, then they can be released. Although, you know, of course, if they've served many years in prison, you can never really make up for that. Mm. But if they've been executed, there's nothing you can do. Um, and so that's, that's worse. Uh, and I do think it's a brutalising aspect of a society to, to put people to death in cold blood like that. Um, so I think, you know, those societies that have uh, long prison terms for, for, for murderers um, but not the death penalty, I think are more civilised societies. I interviewed a guy who was on death row for 30 years and he was completely innocent and then they found after 30 years that he was innocent and he was let out and he's a fantastic speaker and author now. But you just think to yourself, that was 30 years of him being in prison and then thank God they never killed him. Yes, he was lucky in that yeah. sense that he could put off the execution for such a yeah. long time and, and eventually be vindicated. Um yeah, so he's one of the lucky ones, and I, you know, obviously there are others who were executed uh, and who were innocent. Um, you know that that undoubtedly happens, and the fact that just by good luck that person you mentioned was not executed shows mm. that others just didn't have that luck. Obviously, you're a big philosopher, and I'd love to know. Like, I think philosophy is so interesting, but. What is it about it that you love so much? I'm incredibly lucky that I, I get paid for doing something that I enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy thinking about difficult problems. Um, I enjoy arguing about them. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, um, I was originally going to do law and I guess then I would have got paid for arguing. But yes. the problem is I would have had to argue the side of the person who was paying me um, rather than you know trying to uncover the truth of the matter. And... Um, as a philosopher, I can focus on what is the best answer, what is the, the truth of the matter, what are the most justifiable ways of living, what are what are things we ought to do and things we ought not to do. Uh, and I find that fascinating and um, I think my career has shown that it isn't just uh, in, interesting and entertaining for itself but that it does matter to how we live um, and that uh, I've tried to uh, influence people to live in better ways that cause less harm to others. So uh, I find it um, a very rewarding career. I think I'm very fortunate. From all the work that you've done, do you think that people, humans, are innately good or not? I think that human nature is innately flexible, um, innately influenced by upbringing and culture. Mm. Um, and it's possible that, you know, there are also innate tendencies that vary from individual to individual. But I think there's lots of evidence that in certain circumstances, people can be very, do very terrible things. Obviously, we, we talked about the Holocaust earlier and uh, the number of people who took part in that, were complicit in it, um, is quite astonishing, really. Um, ordinary people who were sort of drafted out of uh, their home environment where they'd led decent lives and then um, told to do things you know, to to murder people who they knew were innocent, even children. Um, it's it's horrendous. So clearly, humans have that possibility, but they also have the possibility to be tremendously altruistic, to make sacrifices for others. Um, 
And, you know, to take a contemporary example, I think uh, the effective altruism movement has shown that. And I, through being part of that movement, I've met many wonderful people um, who've donated money, donated time, and even in some cases we're saying donated a kidney to help mm. people um, in need. So uh, that's why I say, you know, we cover the whole spectrum. We were talking about war, obviously, earlier. Do you think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was anything that was justified there? No, not at all. Um, I think it's uh, it's a return of a kind of imperialist idea that Putin mm. has about recreating the Russia uh, that was the dominant force mm. in Eastern mm. Europe, the, where the you know, czarist Russia that ruled large parts of not only Ukraine but also Poland and uh other, other places in Eastern Europe um, or um, under the Soviet Union, of course, where it also dominated those countries. Uh, and I think Putin wants to go down in history as somebody who has restored Russia's greatness. And to do that, he's prepared to kill very large numbers of people, including very large numbers of Russians because they've suffered enormous casualties, um, but very large numbers of Ukrainian civilians, children, you know, randomly firing rockets at apartment that hit apartment buildings and kill people. Um, I think it's it's totally diabolical and I can't see any justification whatsoever for it. Mm. On a day-to-day basis, living an altruistic life, what are your just general principles of being a good person? I think being a good person involves, at a minimum, not supporting factory farming um, and ideally um, eating a, a vegan diet. I think that is the most ethical one, both because of concern for animals, but also because it does the least for changing the climate of our planet. Um, meat and dairy are major contributors to climate change. So I think what we eat is an important part. Um, I also think that those of us who are middle class or above ought to be doing something to help people who are just less fortunate than we are, um, particularly people living in low-income countries on the, uh, in extreme poverty. Uh, people living on the World Bank's uh, borderline for extreme poverty now is is US $2.15 a, a day, so maybe $3, something like that, a little bit more Australian per day. Um, and it's so easy to help them and to make a difference in their life by giving to one of the effective charities that, as I mentioned, The Life You Can Save recommends. So I think we ought to be doing something, uh, so doing that with a, a part of our assets, what, what we can spare without impoverishing ourselves. Uh, and in my book, The Life You Can Save, which you can also download free from thelifeyoucansave.org, I set out some standards for what we ought to do in that respect. So those are two really important things, I think, but also, of course, just you know, being a, a good person to your friends and family and being, being helpful to those close to you is another important part of living ethically. Peter Singer, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Well, I think the best advice is is one that I happen to mention early in the interview when I went uh, up to um, uh, the University of Melbourne having been admitted to law school um, and the advisor there um, said, you might find law a bit dry, why don't you um, do a combined arts degree? Because if if he hadn't advised me to do that, um, no doubt I would be a lawyer. Maybe I would be successful as a lawyer, but I don't think I would be doing mm. as much good. And I also don't think I would be living as rich and fulfilling a life mm. uh, as I am now. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, um, well, I think it's really important to 
to listen to people who have different perspectives uh, from mine. I think when I was younger, I was maybe a little too dismissive. Um, I now think it's important to be open to dialogue, even with people who quite radically disagree with you. So um, when I teach at Princeton now, I invite people who hold very different views from me mm. about abortion or um, other issues to uh, come to Princeton and to speak to my students so that uh, they can hear a variety of viewpoints. Um, and I'm the co-editor of a journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which exists in order to um, allow people to publish controversial ideas, which nowadays they might otherwise find difficulty in publishing. Um, and I don't agree with uh, a lot of the ideas published in the journal, but I still think they ought to be heard. And if you, know, if you disagree with something, um, then argue against it. Um, don't just try to silence it. Mm, yes, that's good advice. What's your greatest hope for society today? I hope that we will continue to develop in terms of a wider concern for others uh, and that that concern for others will mean that we do more for people in extreme poverty, that we um, uh, take seriously the kind of assistance that we can give to them, saving lives by providing better health care, um, helping them to work their way out of poverty in, in various ways. Um, and I also hope that eventually this will expand beyond our own species to take account of all the sentient beings on the planet, all the non-human animals. Uh, I would like to believe that that is a process that has been going on for thousands of years, expanding our circle of concern, uh, and I hope that it will continue. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is being able to make a positive impact on the world. Mm. Uh, I think that's the most important thing we can do to leave the world better than it would have been if we had not lived in it, and not just for ourselves and not even just for our family and loved ones, but on a wider scale. Peter Singer, thank you for all the wonderful work you've done. Thank you for your new book, Animal Liberation Now. You've had an effect on so many people and you're changing more lives. So thank you, I appreciate that. Thanks very much, Sarah. It's been really great to talk to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.